bench science just wasn't for me. It was so much troubleshooting and repetition, and it was exhausting. It's really that you just don't want to be a bench scientist anymore, but you still like learning about science because that's a lot of what you're going to be doing. Actually, two weeks ago, I had a case that was directly relevant to my thesis work, which I thought would never happen. This is Translate Your Training, where we explore non-academic careers in the life sciences and talk to professionals about what aspects of their PhD training were most important for their careers and how they translated their training. We're your hosts. I'm Margaret. And I'm Gabby. Last week, we learned all about what it takes to become a field application scientist when we spoke to Allie. She also gave us a bunch of great general career and grad school advice. Yes, last week was a real eye-opener. It was really nice to learn about a career away from the bench, and talking to Allie was really inspiring. There are really great people willing to help. What career are we exploring today, Margaret? So today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to march over to the law side of science. And I had absolutely no idea there were scientists that became lawyers, but I guess it's a thing and it's a popular career too. It is? Oh, do you mean patent law? Yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So law may seem unrelated to science at first, but a lot of new technologies and discoveries are actually patentable. And the same way an inventor of postis can patent the sticky note technology and then they get the profits, scientists can patent new technologies like CRISPR or, you know, a new therapy or drug that they're studying as well. And then they can make money off of it eventually or make a company. Or go through a lot of lawsuits like the CRISPR people, (laughs) didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But that's really true. I mean, I've actually heard that in academia, we have tech transfer offices that take care of this. But outside of academia, biotechs need to employ lawyers to protect their intellectual property. Exactly. There's a saying that if like you don't have intellectual property, you don't have a company. And these lawyers are there to protect the scientists when it comes to giving credit for their work. And so today I spoke to Ben, who's on his way to being a patent lawyer. Right now he works at a law firm as a technical advisor while he's actually in law school to become a patent lawyer. So he's working in a law firm And he's going to law school at the same time. Yikes. That sounds like a busy schedule. Definitely. Ben took some time out of his super busy schedule to talk to me. So I'm very grateful for that. And he mentions in our interview that the time is sort of a downside of the arrangement. But since the law firm pays for law school, there's definitely an incentive. The downside of this is that you're working while doing law school. So you don't have a ton of time. Um, But yeah, you start as a fully-fledged lawyer without any loans to pay off from law school. So there are benefits to going that route. That's a pretty good deal. How does someone find out about a career in patent law with like the perks where you get your school paid for and all that? I was wondering the same thing. So I asked Ben to talk a little bit about his journey to a career in law. Here's what he shared with me. 
I originally went to undergrad, lots of different interests there, but I started in biochemistry and cell biology. Uh, wasn't entirely certain what I wanted to do after undergrad, so I worked for a year in DNA purification and seeing the limits of science without a PhD kind of drove me to pursue a grad school. So I went to University of Michigan for biochem or biological chemistry. I uh, got my PhD there in 2016 and then was looking around for different postdocs uh, because unfortunately at the time, I thought I didn't like the project that I was on uh, at, at, throughout grad school. So I was thinking maybe if I tried another project via postdoc, I would kind of reignite my passion for science. That wasn't the case. Um, I, I moved from mechanistic entomology towards protein engineering and realized that bench science just wasn't for me. It was so much troubleshooting and repetition, and it was exhausting. So I spoke with some friends um, who were in uh, the same city I was. I was in D.C., by the way. And they were involved in patent law. And one of them was telling me about his job and just some of the really interesting cases that he'd been working on and the different sides of life science, uh, life science and biotech he'd seen through the career. And it got me really interested. So I started uh, studying for the patent bar which is an examination that you can take if you want to do patent prosecution that does not require a legal education. It just requires a technical background in STEM. And during that, start applying to uh, different technical advisor jobs. I guess I should preface this uh, to say that law firms with intellectual property groups will frequently hire, uh, I like to say, jaded scientists and engineers and help the teams understand the uh, the science behind the intellectual property they're working with, whether that be just doing lots of literature research or actually doing some amount of legal research. And so I found some of these jobs, applied to a bunch of them, and then got hired for one, moved up. Uh, and then after two years of working in that context, the firm uh, is now sending me to law school. So grad school part two. That is so cool. So he was able to go from an academic postdoc position to a career in law without first going to law school? Yes. So you don't need to go to law school first to work in the fields of patent law. Ben told me that he started as a technical advisor. And in this role, you interpret the science in the patents to the lawyers. So this involves reading patents and any scientific literature related to it, and then you explain this information in terms that can be easily understood by a lawyer. It sounds like you're essentially the scientific expert in a pool of lawyers that has to translate science jargon into lawyer speak. It's, I guess it's almost like an interpreter translating between two languages, right? Yeah, I guess you could say that. And if you're a PhD that has been reading scientific literature and explaining your science all through grad school, you are very qualified and highly recruited for these technical advisor positions. It has a different name depending on the firm you're looking at. Some call it technical advisor. You'll often see them. Um, it also depends on the kind of work you do, but you'll frequently hear of patent agents, which is kind of in the same realm, but I don't do prosecution. And so some firms will do a strict prosecution focus for this kind of, I think most of them actually would be a prosecution focus, which means writing patents and then pushing them through the patent office. And 
that is pretty much the job you'd be doing up to and through law school, at which point you'd have the option to move into litigation or transactional work, like mergers and acquisitions and dealing with a lot of contract uh, law between different like science groups or between banks looking to invest in companies, stuff like that. I haven't had that experience because the firm I'm at does not do prosecution. And so we're hired directly to work in litigation and uh, transactions. And we're kind of split between the two. So I haven't seen the prosecution side. But basically in the area I've worked in, uh, you initially start out doing a lot of art reviews. So hopping on PubMed frequently to look up all the publications you can that are related to this invention. Also reading all the patents that you can find that are related to the invention, all of which were published before your patent was filed, which is called prior art and can be used to invalidate or attack um, patents and try to quash them so that you're no longer liable for infringement, for example. I've worked on hoses, um, medical stents, stent grafts, antibodies, uh, DNA-based therapeutics, trying to think what else. Oh yeah, I have worked on one biofuel producing enzyme, which was awesome because that's why our enzyme was a biofuel producing enzyme. That one felt very relevant. But yeah, it's kind of been all over the place in life sciences. We've done what's called CAR-T, a number of projects with different CAR-T technologies. I've seen some diagnostic stuff, but generally I haven't been used on that because there have been so many life science cases coming in and the diagnostic stuff is a lot more engineering based. So it's, it's kind of been all over the place. And then every now and then you'll get used completely outside of life sciences, like on hoses. Wow. So you're really involved in the literature and keeping up to date with new findings in a lot of fields, not just the niche fields we're used to in our PhD research. Yes, and you are also helping scientists figure out if their work is novel enough to patent. So it has to be significantly different than what has come before. And Ben mentioned he has got to look at a lot of top secret state-of-the-art technologies and patents as his work so far as a technical advisor. Frequently that will happen when a company does not want to allow electronic copies of its trade secrets or important documents to get out. And so they'll actually require you to physically come on site and review their documentation there. For example, like an IND, an investigational new drug application. Maybe they're worried about trade secrets getting out or getting exposed to competitors, even though there are a lot of legal steps that would prevent that happening. But it's still, it's, it's a valid concern. So uh, when that happens, they'll generally bring you out to physically inspect things at their site so that they know none of it's leaving the room. I am so curious what top secret technology he has gotten to see. Yes, I'm sure it's exciting, but he could not explain it to me due to non-disclosure agreements. And I bet he knows a lot of things before most scientists do because they're not published yet or they're not on the market. If you or any of our other listeners are interested in learning about these super confidential technologies as a career, Ben mentioned that the route he took is not the only one possible in law. There's a test called the patent bar. So similar to what lawyers take, there's a test called the bar. Um, The patent bar is for people interested in becoming patent agents. And for the patent bar, there's free materials to study. 
And once you pass this test, you're officially a patent agent and you can work with the United States Patent Office as a prosecutor without ever having to go to law school. A prosecutor that doesn't have to go to law school? I'm learning so much. Exactly. That's why we're asking these questions because there's so many things that we still don't know. And so some people elect to take this patent bar test instead of going to law school and they continue to have fulfilling careers as patent agents. Basically, once you've done the patent bar for all real purposes, you can independently function um, with the USPTO. So you can do everything needed to interact with the USPTO and get a patent uh, granted. Sorry, USPTO is the United States Patent and Trademark Office. But litigation transactions, it doesn't matter. You have to be a lawyer to really do anything. So if, if you enjoy prosecution, it actually sounds like a really nice career. And it's something I'm curious about maybe looking into someday. It's much more structured and scheduled than litigation and transactions work. So it might be stressful, but you know what to expect every day. Interesting. But didn't you say that Ben is going to law school? Why would someone choose to do that instead of the patent bar? Well, for one, a firm can pay for your law school tuition and pay you a salary on top of it. Right. You did mention that. Such a great deal. Yes. And as a patent lawyer, your role in the field of patent law would change. Ben talked a bit about that. So I guess the, the real difference uh, before and after law school, um, before law school, your focus is very heavily on the science side. So doing all the technical review, looking at PubMed for papers and reviewing those. After law school, you're still doing that, but you're going to be burdened with more and more legal research. So looking up case law, and that's basically reading cases that have been decided in whatever jurisdiction you're looking at to see which way the courts are leaning on different issues. So it's kind of a shift from those technical work to more of the legal work, but you still need the technical background. I, I feel like the, the specializations that I've seen um, have been mostly like a type of case rather than the technology. So the partners I work with specialize in ANDA litigation, which is generics, abbreviated new drug application, but it's basically the process by which generics uh, get approved and come in and compete with the name brand, the original, uh, originally developed drug. And so that's, that's her specialty. And that'll involve all kinds of therapeutics. So it, it could be small molecule entirely up to DNA-based, up to cell-based therapeutics. So you specialize in a kind of case or a kind of issue. One of the partners that I work with uh, specializes entirely in trade secret misappropriation, and that area is fascinating. It's much less focused on the type of technology, and it's more you'll take any type of technology in that kind of case. Ah, yes. I see now. There are so many different things you can do as a patent lawyer. It really sounds like anyone can find their space in a career like this. It does, but like all jobs, it has its drawbacks too. I asked Ben what were the cons when working in the field of law. Here was his response. The con here is stress and hours. Um, law is demanding. It's so it's billing based, and I've been lucky this year. I think yeah, for the most part, this year I've been lucky. But there was, I think, my first year. There was a month where I was. I was working from noon till 4 a.m. every day because I was corresponding with China 
over this one case where I was kind of like the front person because I was the only person in the firm with a straight protein biochemistry background. And that was, it threw me off for a bit. That was a rough month. And I, I work with some associates who, since COVID started, have maybe slept three hours a night and gotten 10 to 20 minutes of family time a day while billing a solid 15 hours a day because the case just the cases they're on just require that. So you will get really busy sometimes, but I, I guess that at least at the firm I'm at, one nice counter uh, counter to that is that they very much encourage you to take vacation time. They give you pretty ample vacation time, even though there's nothing to do for a vacation right now. But yeah, so I mean, um, they, they encourage you to take vacation and there's almost like an unwritten rule that after a big litigation case ends, pretty much everyone takes a week or two off and just goes on vacation to take a break. But when you're on, it's stressful and it's tough work. That would, I, I would say is the biggest downside. It's when you get a busy case, it can be demanding. Wow. Law hours sound a bit like grad student hours, right? <laughs> exactly. Lots of nights and weekends here too. I asked Ben about which transferable skills from grad school he uses now as a technical advisor. He had several examples for us, and these are skills that every PhD student learns over the course of their degree. There are only two, but they're big ones that you work on a lot in grad school, so it does help. It's critical reading of everything, but primarily scientific publications, um, because that is a large part of what you do. You're looking for inconsistencies or weak data or basically connections that could be drawn uh, in different contexts from the findings in whatever paper you're looking at. And then just overall the ability to do literature searches and to know what is worth relying on, what has high impact factor and stuff. Those are the two skills that I would say have been most transferable uh, into patent law. And you use them all the time. Actually, that question just reminded me of one other really important transferable skill um, that actually is looked for significantly on your, uh, actually two more. Okay, now, now they're all just coming to mind. Being able to take this complicated scientific theory, dumb it down and explain it to people easily and with simplicity is a huge skill that they're looking for in these, kind of, uh, these kinds of jobs. But yeah, doing that with a complicated scientific Projects, I don't know, pursuit, a few papers, whatever. But taking it, pulling out the relevant points and making it easy to understand. And related to that is teaching. So teaching experience is really helpful. Because I've had a few cases where I've been pulled in by a partner who had no scientific background, but was on the case because they were strong litigators or something. And they just wanted me to explain the technology to them because they had, and I mean, from the point of like, working with an antibody, but not knowing what an amino acid was. So starting all the way back and explaining how antibodies were made, folded and functioned. So teaching and yeah, that, that kind of communication of understandable, or yes, understandable communication of scientific theory is also really important. So critical reading and lit reviews. That makes a lot of sense if your job is to read the literature pertaining to a new patent and to communicate the science to lawyers. Exactly. Ben also gave me advice on how to highlight these skills in an interview so that you could land a job in this field right out of school. Even in all the interviews, 
technical stuff never came up because by having the PhD, it's very much assumed that you have the technical background and you know how to do critical reading. But the interview questions were always focused on communicating your thesis project in a very simple manner. They wanted to see that you can do that. And then also a lot of judgment um, was levied on the uh, personal statement or cover letter, just your writing style. Write well and clearly and show that you know what you're talking about. One of my interviews, I, I just for 30 minutes talked about my favorite fantasy novels with the partner because it, it was really about personal skills and how you communicated. And interviews for law are much more personal and less technical, I found. That's similar to what Ali said, that it's important in an interview to be yourself. It seems like a lot of non-academic jobs really value personality fit. Exactly. Just being yourself can go a long way in interviews. Ben was such a great guest and gave me a lot of insight into the world of patent law that I didn't really know existed. We ended our interview with some general advice for current grad students curious about getting into the field of patent law. Yeah, as I'm sure y'all have seen in grad school, so much of what you hear about is kind of dictated by your professor or your, yeah, your advisor. Um, and if you have an advisor that's entirely all about academia, you're not going to hear that much about alternative paths. And yeah, I, I, many of these schools have good tech transfer offices that you can do small, odd jobs with or work with to get some exposure. I guess really consider how much you enjoy spending your time looking up and reading literature because reading and writing is 95%, maybe more of the job. So if you really enjoy reading and you really enjoy um, kind of teaching what you learn about to technically competent people, that then you might really enjoy this, especially if you don't like doing bench work, but you still enjoy and have a passion for learning science. Keep those considerations in mind. And then to really, if you want to try to like really get an idea of if it's a good fit for you. I've, I have no personal experience with this, but as we were talking about earlier, the tech transfer office, see if they have some projects you could work on, read a patent or two. And honestly, the studying for the patent bar independently can be done for free because there are tons of free uh, materials online. Just see if that material interests you, but also know that the work itself is much less dry and boring than the patent bar material. And they can be pretty good careers if, if uh, you enjoy it. And there are so many other options too. Just know you're not stuck to academia. Yeah, you never know how you'll like a field until you get some exposure, that's for sure. Maybe I'll take a look at a patent sometime. I don't think I've ever read one before. Have you? I definitely have never read a patent, so maybe I'll have to check it out. Well, thanks to Ben for his time, and thanks for listening. Tune in next week where we learn more about how to translate our training. Find us at Translate Your Training wherever you find podcasts. Read our show notes and find our episodes on our website at translateyourtraining.org. Follow us on Instagram at translateyourtraining and on Twitter at tyourtpodcast or send us an email at translateyourtraining at gmail.com. This episode was produced by us, Margaret Burns and Gabriella Goldberg. Our logo is by Eileen Ibar. And our intro music is by Luke Urza.